Hey, if you brought a Bible or a Bible app, why don't you open your Bible or click on said Bible app, and let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 12 together. That was some pretty slick bass play in there. Yeah. Yep. Laid it right down in the groove there. Gospel of Matthew. It's been a while since I've sort of introduced or reminded us uh, what we're looking at in this text. Uh, we, there was a few weeks of, of different focus since Pentecost Sunday. But the Gospel of Matthew is obviously early, 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 <laughs> early uh, gospel, uh, piece of Christian literature. And one of, the, one of its uses uh, from, from the get-go in the early church was that the Gospel of Matthew was used as a, um, as a discipleship manual. And it makes sense because... Uh, it, 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 it's, it's written by a guy who, who the first time we hear Jesus talking to him, we hear the words, follow me. And to follow me is the command to come and be a disciple. So everybody say, follow me. That's what Jesus said, and that's his invitation. It's a command to be a disciple of Jesus. And so the book of Matthew tells us uh, who Jesus is. It tells us what to expect or how, what to understand about Jesus and his kingdom. It's a very regal gospel. It's a gospel that, that is kingdom-centric, that Jesus is a king and that he has a kingdom and that following him means yielding, submitting to, obeying him, imitating and obeying Jesus as his disciple. And so, the, so this gospel says, here's what it looks like. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what it looks like to follow him. Amen. So what, but what, also what we have really seen as we've dug into the text is we, Matthew loves the idea as a regal gospel, as a gospel of kingdom. Matthew loves the idea of, of expressing Jesus' authority. That Jesus has uh, unusual, uh, astonishing authority. Uh, even at, at, as he begins the Sermon on the Mount that he's teaching, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Ma- the, the Sermon on the Mount finishes with uh, everybody going, wow, he teaches with authority. And then Matthew carries that theme directly into 8, 9, and 10 as he demonstrates Jesus' authority basically over anything that moves. Uh, over sickness, over disease, over demonization, over paralysis, uh, over leprosy, uh, over the wind and the waves, over over uh, tormented demoniacs that live in caves and frighten whole civilizations, and and even that when and the wind and the waves, he pauses to let us know that even his disciples see when he stands up and tells the storm to be quiet. That's it for them. That's it. They've lost their minds. They, they, they say, who is this guy? And the reader, the right response to Jesus in the book of Matthew is shock and awe over his authority. And one of the ways we characterize this as we were mostly or only online is Matthew wants us to see big Jesus. And the the bigger Jesus is, why that's so important is when Jesus is big in the canvas of our minds, then our faith will follow suit. So often folk think that they need to struggle or they try to struggle to develop faith or cultivate faith or I got to get my, I really got to work on my faith. No, you don't. You just need to see big Jesus. 
And when Jesus is big, our faith is robust and our obedience is ready. It'll, it'll just respond. Disciples of Jesus are enamored with and overwhelmed by the authority, the majesty of Jesus. Now we're going to look at a passage today in, the, in Matthew chapter 12 that continues to celebrate and recognize the unusual authority of Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus exercise his authority once again in a, in a contest, in a, in a conflict between the, the kingdom of heaven and the tyranny of the devil. We're going to see that. But what's Matthew's point? Why is he telling us this story? It seems like, and we'll all show you, it seems like he's, he's telling us, he's showing us something that we've already seen. We've already seen Jesus exercise authority over these ways. So he's going to do it again. But something now happens in the middle of this story. That Jesus uses the context of this conflict to now he's going to move in and he's going to he's going to teach them something about life in the kingdom and the significance of our ethics. And what Jesus is actually going to do is right in the middle of this story about, the, about conflict between good and evil, the kingdom of heaven, and the tyranny of the devil, Jesus is going to warn us about our words. He's going to warn us that our words reveal the content of our heart. Therefore, he says, our words will be evidence at judgment of the condition of our hearts. So let's walk through Matthew chapter 12. We're going to pick it up at verse 22 today, and we're going to read section by section. And uh, 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 Jeremy Young said to me last night, he said, I saw your PowerPoint, and I thought, oh, no, we're going to be here for three hours. Uh, uh, He said, it's unusual for you to go cover so much ground. I said, well, when we did Revelation, I did a whole chapter at a time. He said, yeah, that was unusual. So this is a long, this is a long passage, and uh, you will probably, with me, some of you will get probably enthused about even one or two sentences and think, man, we could have spent a whole day on that or several, several Sundays just on one or two sentences in this passage. That's true, but I think to honor the intention of Matthew, we want to get to, and I'll show you where, it, where we get the clue in the text, we want to get to the point of this pericope. <laughs> You're welcome, honey. So the point of the pericope in this passage. Uh, here we go. You ready? Let's pick it up here. Verse, verse, verses, we're going to start with verse 22. Uh, we'll re- read the first two verses, 22 and 30, 23. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished. This is not this is not unusual for Matthew. This is a Matthew a math a, a Mathinian, a Matthewism. It's what Matthew says. The people were astonished. Matthew wants us to see that. 
trying to withhold my gear. But remember, this, this is the way we're supposed to respond to the text. And I'm not asking you to be a phony baloney, but I'm asking you to say, you know what? If I read this and go, eh, I might be missing it. I might be, I might be treating something too familiarly. Overly familiar. <laughs> Every once in a while, the Tennessee creeps up in there, and I just can't get words right. Yeah, there's a weird, there's a, there's a back trail in Davenport back to Tennessee in moonshine, and we don't need to talk about it. There's a, re- there's a reason why Pastor Jim likes NASCAR. <laughs> well, they're turning left again, George. Yep. Uh, anyway. And then he said, lost half the crowd. Uh, uh, yeah, well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so all the people were astonished. And said, could this be the son of David? All right, so what just happened? Then they, people, once again, they brought a demonized or a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. They bring him to Jesus. Whew, we've already covered this, but it's worth saying again. This man had no, he couldn't find Jesus and he couldn't ask for help. And he was entirely at the mercy of people who could see Jesus and could work with him to get him to Jesus. And there are people like that in this world. They are, that they, are, they are beyond helping themselves. And they need the disciples of Jesus to bring them to Jesus. It's the, it's the job of disciples of Jesus to say, hey, this person can't, couldn't find Jesus. He can't see him, and he's too far gone, and he can't even ask for help. The, fo- the followers of Jesus Christ must stand in the gap for those who do not know enough to ask for help or cannot do it. You see, we could stop one verse at a time. But then faith will mock me and say, you won't finish Matthew until I have grandchildren. I think you said, I think you said you, you were, I, I wouldn't finish. You thought you were going to graduate high school first. Well, sis, that, that ship has sailed. Let's aim for college. No, I'm, we're, I'm, I'm committed to try to get through this thing by Christmas. I'm not kidding. Um, I told you I mapped it out last week. I, I prayed through and mapped it out. I thought, oh boy, I got, I got to Thanksgiving. I thought, oh, we're sunk. Anyway, and that's with covering pretty good ground. And I'm not helping myself by, by delaying now. So they brought to him a demonized man who was both blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. So this man is demonized. He is blind. He is mute. And Jesus says, he, Jesus healed him so that he could talk and see. So we have symptoms and the source. The source is is a spiritual affliction. The symptoms were blindness and muteness. And Jesus handles both in one swat. He deals with the symptoms and the source. Somebody say, Big Jesus. We don't don't have to go back 14 times to Dr. Jesus and figure out what the beans is going on. Well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Nope. Jesus deals with the source and the symptoms. What is this text inviting us to see about Jesus? What has the church been invited to see about Jesus for 2,000 years? The absolute, unmitigated, unparalleled authority of Jesus Christ. I have no time for this. 
Healing and deliverance in the text, in the Gospels, you'll see that healing and deliverance are not really distinguished. It doesn't say, first, Jesus delivered him from the demon, then healed him. It just said, healed. So we, we need to understand that in, in, the, in first century thought, these things were not necessarily divided. That they understood that physical affliction could easily be the result of a spiritual affliction. And these, were, these, were, these people just needed to be healed. Say they needed to be healed. Once again, is there any shame in this game? Is anyone being accused of anything? Fault finded, anything like that? No. He gives generously to all without finding fault. He is not trying to, he doesn't first interrogate this guy and figure out why he was playing with an Ouija board or shooting up needles or whatever else. Maybe that stuff might happen, but see, these people don't, aren't, aren't, these aren't like gold medal candidates for repentance, and then you and I are just silver medal candidates. Everybody gets to repent. Book of Acts, three times Paul says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. But we also note that although the gospel doesn't distinguish that, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't attribute every vice or affliction to, to a spiritual source. But we do have to recognize that like Jesus, unless the church of Jesus Christ is willing to say, hey, we've got to address spiritual causes. If we are unwilling to address spiritual causes, we will not see people get healed or helped or free. Good enough. So then the stop, so he does this, Jesus deals with the man is now, he can now see and he can speak and everyone is blown away. They are astonished. And what do they say? They say, could he be the son of David. Now, that, that has a long theological history, uh, both because of, because of the act of deliverance and, and the tradition of, of Solomon and all that kind of thing. Don't want to get into that today. But it is, this is absolutely a, a, a code word for, is he the Messiah? And the son of David, particularly in Matthew's regal kingdom-oriented gospel, the, is, could he be the son of David? All the crowd said, yes. Yes, or amen work. But all the crowd said, yeah, the, the, we say yes, and the Pharisees hear them asking this question, and what do they say? No. <laughs> exactly. They say, no. He can't be because that would mess with our plans. It would mess with Rome. That would cause a problem. We don't like this guy. We know all about the Messiah, and Jesus doesn't fit everything that we've predicted is supposed to happen. And we all know that everyone who has ever predicted anything about eschatology has always been right. You know, if you have any time this afternoon, just go ahead and get on even Wikipedia and just type in predictions of the end of the world. And you will see the longest list of people that you respect, like Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley, are in there. Everybody's been wrong. Uh, Jesus is Eternity is real. Jesus is coming, and we should live like it. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, so they say, that the Pharisees hear that. They say, could, this, could the, the crowds are astonished. They say, wow, Jesus is amazing. He's big. He's inspiring our faith and our obedience. And they're taking steps to him. And then the Pharisees say, uh, verse 24, the Pharisees heard this. And they said, it is only by, your Bible might say Beelzebul or Beelzebub. I'll explain that in one second. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That's the key. The prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. It's probably Beelzebub. Beelzebul is the name of an ancient Canaanite phony baloney deity. Beelzebul has kind of a distinguished means Lord of Baal is Lord of something or another. doesn't matter. Beelzebub 
was the, the Israelites changed it in order, to, in order to, to speak derogatorily of an ancient phony baloney god. So Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. But that phrase, Lord, that phrase Beelzebub, became a, a euphemism, a euphemism for Satan. The same with Belial. Belial in the in the Qumran texts, in the in the, the in the um, in this uh, what are those Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint. Uh, uh, those things, uh, the Bel- Belial is another name. These so the first century, first century Judaism, there was more than one name or euphemism for Satan. And so what they're saying is Jesus is casting out demons because he is in league with Satan himself. He has partnered with or joined up with the Prince of Demons. Now this isn't the first time they have said this. They tried it before, and it apparently didn't get much traction. So they're going to try it again. Because they can't deny, they can't deny Jesus' miracles. This man couldn't see or speak. Now he can. So the only thing they can do is attack Jesus' character. To make insinuations about him. They malign him with their mouths. You don't have to switch baby. Baby can talk. Baby you hear that? Baby said one thing. Everyone, shh. He said, you don't get him off track again. <laughs> we'll be here all day. <laughs> they, they distort. They accuse. The shame squad shows up. They accuse him of being in league with, with, uh, with Satan But remember now, this is not just an insult. If they can make this thing stick, the consequence would be the death penalty. If people believed it, they'd get a lynch mob like that. Kill him. So it's not just an insult. It's an attempted assassination. But isn't that always true whenever we engage in murder by mouth? Don't say ouch. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm just trying to say we should not engage in murder by mouth. These are these are principles that are in the context, but it's not even well. So we're getting to the point. That's a hint of where we're going. Verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, "See, here's the deal. That what that tells us is that number one, that Jesus is operating by the Spirit, and he perce- he perceives by the Spirit, like in 1 Corinthians 12, like at a word of knowledge, he perceives by the Spirit what's what's going on, what they're saying. But it also tells us that it wasn't like they had the courage to get up and say, "Hey, uh, he's doing this by Beelzebub, Beelzebub, Beelzebub." No, no, that's not what they do. It's, that's not what we do, is it? When we want to malign people. No, when we, when we want to malign people and commit murder by mouth, we do it real quiet. We do it real quiet, and we, we, we clothe ourselves in a lot of dignity. Now listen, I don't want to say anything, but I think Beelzebub. <laughs> Beelzebub? I don't think so. You didn't hear it from me. Beelzebub. So Jesus says to them, he perceives their thoughts and says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So his first rebuttal is to say, you guys are idiots. (laughs) 
his first rebuttal is to say any kingdom, any household, any nation divided against itself will not stand. So yes, we see already a freestanding truth, a principle. Every time Jesus talks, we should listen. We see a freestanding principle that, that for, for families, for teams, for friendships, for churches, or for countries, that division is the only thing that will stop us. We can overcome anything but division. So his first response is, well, that wouldn't work. That would be ridiculous. His, then he continues his rebuttal in this <laughs> verse 27. He says, if I, now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people or your sons or your disciples cast them out? So then they will be your judges. What does he mean by that? Well, history tells us, and I'll try to be, and you don't need all the background on this, but history tells us that, the, that by, by, the first, by first century times that uh, the, 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 the Pharisees and, and their disciples, some of them had gotten into a practice of exorcism. I, we've talked a little bit about this. They weren't that successful, but they tried. And they, their attempts at exorcism involved uh, I would say smoke and mirrors, but literally incense and chanting and probably things that would subdue or even, you know, would quiet a person down. You know, you know the, how a, a rhythmic chanting or incense or dream catching or even some sort of, look, some people say they, they, they were burning a little hemp, but... Uh, uh, but all that to say, if you used enough of that kind of stuff, you could subdue the symptoms of a person who was acting demonized and then claim success. Ta-da! Did it. And then once that person, if they kick back up, you'd say, well, i got to come back. And then maybe you grease their palm and they do it again. But they claim, to, they, they claim to be able to do this. That's why when Jesus shows up, remember, that's why when Jesus shows up and simply approaches severely demonized people and says, get out, and it happens, that's the astonishing part. That's why they go, blah, 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 wait a minute, where was the candles? Where's the smoke? Where's the chanting? Where did, why not, what doesn't, how come he doesn't do anything but command and it absolutely happens? That's the shock. So Jesus says, hey, look, if I'm doing this by Beelzebub, how, how, how are you guys doing it? See, be, they claim to be successful, but their, their success never even approached Jesus' demonstrated authority. So what he's saying is, uh, either you guys are frauds, or you too are in league with the devil. They got nothing. So then he says this. So here's this final. Now this isn't a, a rebuttal. This is an answer. He said, but... He said, first of all, a kingdom divided can't stand. Secondly, you guys try this, and you can't even do it. But more importantly, this. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God, the dominion, the authority, the rule of God has come upon you. So Jesus, first of all, theologically, we need to see this. Pay attention. How does Jesus drive out demons potions incantations magic formula listen to me now listen to me now Ask, don't don't shout until you hear does he do it as what we as does he do it because he is divine did he say if i cast out demons because i am divine no he relies upon the anointing of the holy spirit and if he does, 
And if he can, if that was his mission, Bob's your uncle. Nice job. Here, Jesus fully attributes the power of his ministry to the Holy Spirit. And he's saying that that prevailing influence of the Holy Spirit is the kingdom of God, and it looks like people are getting healed and free and delivered, that this is the dominion of heaven come to earth, and it's happening in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he says it further. He said, for again, 29, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. In other words, you don't plunder a strong man's house by partnering with the strong man. You plunder a strong man's house because you are stronger than the strong man. And that's what Jesus says he is. I'm the one who's stronger than the strong man. He is big Jesus, and he alone is strong enough to come in and ransack Satan's territory and to rescue everyone who has been under the tyranny of the devil. I like that, the last phrase. Then he can plunder his house. Jesus has come, and he is, he is not, his intent is to leave no one behind, no one bound, no one in torment. That is the mission of Jesus. And it is therefore the mission of all who follow after him. And then he draws a line. See, he's pressing this. I do this by the Spirit of God. I have, I have specifically come to bind the strong man and, and, and plunder his house. That's my mission. And if you're against me, then what? Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You are either with Jesus or you are against him. You are either helping him gather or you are scattering. There is no neutral territory and there are no spectators. This is a clash of kingdoms. And Jesus is the one who has come against the devil. And Jesus says to the Pharisees here, if you're against me, you are actually the ones in league with Satan. Whew, that is not very Facebooky Jesus, is it? <laughs> but now, verse 31 is a pivot. It's an axis. Now we have the teaching pendulum switches right here. Verse 31, and so I tell you. There it is. Say that, that, just say that phrase out loud with me. And so I tell you. That tells us in the text the point. All of what he has said is true. All of what he has said happened. But why is Matthew writing it? Matthew brings us to the point. Jesus has something he wants to teach us from this episode, from what just happened. Verse 31, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Four times, I have it highlighted in my little notes right here, four times he references words. And so I tell you, Conflict between darkness and, 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 and light, conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the tyranny of the devil, and then he says, words, 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 words. 
I want to talk to you about words. He's not changing the subject. The context intensifies the subject. He's calling these Pharisees out by saying, because they said he's doing this by Beelzebub, and he is telling them, listen, guys, your slander, your words are far more serious than even your ill intentions might have imagined. Because you are, you are calling that which is good evil and calling that which is evil good, that is a poison from which you will not recover. If anybody is listening in the room or online or if somehow this leaks out somewhere in the world, calling good evil and evil good is a poison from which you will not recover. Stop. Jesus said, you've just slandered, you've just blasphemed the Holy Spirit by calling his holy and powerful and pure influence evil. And he said, that will be held against you now, and you'll have to answer for it later. So Jesus uses the occasion of spiritual conflict to draw attention to and to warn us, the reader. Now, Matthew wants to warn the reader about our words. How do we get to demons and Holy Ghost and power to words? Well, words are more important than we probably think. We'll talk about it in just a minute, but let's, let, let, let Jesus teach us about it first. Verse 33, he begins now. Here's the warning. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. So fruit begins at the root, right? We don't scold the fruit for being bad. We see bad fruit, and we look at the root. Make, make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. He's also saying, commentators also say, hey, by the way, he's also calling them to take a look at, to, 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 re, to remeasure Jesus himself. Look at the, the, his fruit is people are getting delivered and healed and freed. That's good fruit. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. He's calling them vipers because only venom is coming out of their mouths. You brood of vipers, how can you, who are evil, say anything good? Here's verse 34 is really a, the summary principle here. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If you're like me growing up, you, what you said was out of the abundance of the heart, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth is the overflow spout of the heart. There is no other way around that. Whatever the heart is full of will come out of the mouth. Verse 35, a, a, good, a good man or a good woman, good person, a good person brings good things out of the good stored up. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up. You can only bring out what you have stored up. You can only bring out what you have stored up. You can fake it for a minute, but eventually whatever's in there, that's what's going to come out. Our words, here it is, our words reveal the content of our heart. Just like with trees, so is the heart. 
The fruit begins with the root. We can only bring out what we've stored up. The evil words of the Pharisees revealed that their roots were bitter and poisonous, and they had stored up evil in their hearts, and that's what was coming out. How could they see a person who was in bondage and torment and now joyfully free and then say something evil about it? Then Jesus continues the warning. It's not just that our words reveal the content of our inner life right now. They will. Our words will be evidence for or against us on the day of judgment. Verse 36. But I tell you, everyone will have to give an account on the day. Who will? Who that? Everyone. Everyone will have to give an account. That means the disciples of Jesus get to talk about it too. We get to. Everybody gets to join this fun. I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, or by your words you will be condemned. Our words will be the evidence at judgment of the condition of our hearts. We'll have to give an account of, for our words. We will be accountable, Jesus said, for every empty lifeless, hostile, every evil word we've spoken. You know, I, I suppose at this point it's easy for us or may, it might be tempting for us to say, uh, we distance ourselves from that because it would have been easier for us to feel better about this if the Pharisees were just dropping you know, F-bombs. Aye. <laughs> in church if the pharisees were just dropping profanity we'd say well yeah i mean that you shouldn't talk like that glad i don't am i right meg all right am i right but the pharisees weren't using profanity they were actually they were actually dressing their words in 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 wonderful spiritual gowns they were speaking quite spiritually at the time well you know i think they're in league with the devil probably appeared very pious. We can dress our poison in wonderful religion, but we'll still have to be accountable for it. This warning is real, 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 and you and I have to have the humility and the courage to take Jesus seriously. And take inventory of our hearts and our words. I know you want to say, Jesus, could you take it easy? It's just words. Maybe Jesus hasn't heard that thing about sticks and stones. Of all the things that he could point out, he has to talk about words. But Jesus said, your words are divisive, they are destructive, and he compares them to the venom of vipers. And he says, your words will prove or disprove your discipleship. So this is much more than just saying, oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. This is about the core of who we are. Because the truth is this, our virtue or our vices begin in this heart-mouth principle. You might say, well, why didn't Jesus just say, if you're a murderer, you're going to be held accountable for it? Well, he did. 
Because murder always will always begin here and then go to here before it goes to here. Whatever you do will begin with what the content of you, the, con, the, the climate of your heart, the content of your heart, and the conduct of your mouth. Your meditation and your speech will become and influence every part of your life. James, James tells us this in James chapter 3, verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways, but anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Able to keep the whole body in check. If we can, under the authority of Jesus and through living in vital contact with the Spirit, learn to, to sanctify the content of our heart and the conduct of our mouth, we can, we can influence our, we can live in a whole different realm of righteousness. We can get victory over anything. But you won't get victory over anything until you change the content of your heart and the conduct of your mouth. The speech center in the brain is the most dominant part. You can, you'll, your whole body will be affected by what you say. And Scripture, Scripture is more than clear. I've got to watch my time here. But Scripture is more than clear. You, you, some of you have read a few portions of the Bible. Let me just give you some, some portions that just demonstrate that the Lord expects our words to be gracious and righteous and life-giving and pleasing to Jesus. Psalm 1914, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Paul says, Ephesians 4, 29, do not let any unwholesome, that word would be like rotten fruit or rotten fish. Whatever rotten fruit touch, if a rotten fruit touches other fruit, everything rotten. Rotten fish touch other, other, everything rotten. Don't let anything rotten come out of your mouth. But only, only, <laughs> well, he's just being legalistic here, isn't he? Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit or that it might impart grace to those who listen. How do we do that? How can we? Well, the heart and mouth priority, the first thing we need to do, if we're going to make a change in, our, in, in this whole thing, is we got to, the best place, we have to, we have to, the best place to start is a fresh start. And the, the, the fresh start is, I need to, in my heart, set, a Christ, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ needs to be Lord of my heart, and that I need to say so with my mouth. That's the first corrective. Romans 10 tells us that. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. You talk about what words are going to be measured at judgment, make sure that they get that one. Make sure that somewhere it's written down, you said, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. For it is with your mouth... Pardon me, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's where you must start. But don't stop there. Scripture tells us we don't stop there. It's, that's, that's how we get a fresh start. And then as disciples of Jesus, we have the opportunity to become more like him. We make a tree good. We store up good. Now, 
we store up good by, by just, by, let, me, let, me, let me show you how you do that. There, you, first of all, you start with Romans 10, but then the scriptures are just the, the, are so rich. How do we store up good things? How do I make the root good so the fruit is good? Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden my word in your heart, your, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. James 121, so get rid of, get rid of. I saw on the, on the interwebs, people were having them yard sales. Don't sell the junk, just burn it. I mean the stuff in here, not your house. <laughs> column A, column B, okay? So get rid of all uncleanness and all that remains of wickedness. The leftover from your former life. If you leave that in there, it will stink and it will come out your mouth. Get rid of it and with a humble heart, instead, receive the word of God, which is implanted and it takes root in your heart, which is able to save your souls. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, drink the good stuff. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted the Lord is good. If you're writing this down, I think I have one, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, 3 through 11. Is that on there? No, I gave up. All right. <laughs> if, you want, if you're writing things down, that's a long passage where the apostle says, now... We, that, let me, the first paragraph is this. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly night life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, we can participate in the divine nature. Literally have our nature changed and influenced by his own. Having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So we come to him and we our nature is changed and our desires are changed. That's a heart change. Then he says, after that, start storing up good stuff. From verse 5, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith. And then he lists just stuff. He basically says, become a sanctified hoarder. Just store up every good thing. Just goodness and loving kindness and brotherly love. Homp, 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 homp. Just stick it all in there. You, yeah, you can't, there's no, you can be a spiritual glutton. Just keep eating. Just keep storing up the good stuff. And if you're having trouble getting better, just keep eating. Just keep storing up the good stuff because eventually only the good stuff will come out. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, praiseworthy, think about such things. Store up treasure in your heart and you will bring out treasure from your mouth. You will benefit now, you will bless others now, and you will store up evidence of a righteous heart at judgment. Jesus warns us about our words. They reveal the content and the condition of our heart. The followers of Jesus store up good things in our hearts so that good things will come out of our mouth so that we will have good evidence of our salvation before God at judgment. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. 
Let's take a moment and pray together. Jesus warns us lovingly because he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Lord, we just pray right now that you would start. I just want you even us all to say this together. Start with my heart. Start with my heart. Lord, Lord, search our hearts, God. Reveal to us where we need a change of thinking. Lord, it is, I, I love when Dav says that no one ever regretted repenting. And so this morning, there's some repenting that needs to happen for what we've been keeping in our hearts. And so with a smile, we just say, forgive us, God. And what's so excellent is he does in that moment. And then we begin to just store up. Lord, I pray you would help us to store up the good. Lord, store up, store up your word. Lord, thy word have we hidden in our hearts that we will not sin against you. Lord, may we be people, may we be disciples that our mouth spout, grace comes out. Lord, that our roots, would you would just dig up tear out bad roots because we want to be people walking around with good fruit that we would be recognized in our cities in our homes by our husbands and our wives and our kids our fruit is good lord we thank you for this we thank you that we can make a choice today to say guess what my words are going to reveal because they do anyway the content of my heart and my heart is filled with you so we thank you for that jesus Let's stand together as we close, shall we? Why don't you just take a moment. The Browns are going to lead us in this chorus. Just a couple of minutes. Just, just be honest before the Lord and let the Holy Spirit, in His perfectly loving, powerful, holy way, talk to you just a little bit. The psalmist was courageous enough to say, Lord, search me and know me. Test me. Try me. And whatever is offensive, whatever is unpleasing to you, Lord, let's deal with it. It's worth it, friends. Let's do it together. I just want to speak the name of Jesus. to this text this morning, every single one of us can say, Lord, I want to store up good in my heart. 
And I want my words to be life and health and grace and praise. I want them to be pleasing to you. This we pray today. This we commit to in the name of Jesus. And if that's your prayer, why don't you let someone else hear you say amen. Friends, God bless you. May he keep you in peace. May he surround you with his presence. And may you leave this here. Be kind to someone on your way out today. Speak life in the name of Jesus. God bless you.